Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, President Biden and Vice President Harris give remarks in Atlanta today about the importance of passing federal voting rights legislation and combating a slew of states' efforts to suppress the vote. But some civil rights groups and voting rights groups will skip the speeches. They say the Biden administration is offering words, not deeds, in the face of mounting attacks on voting rights, and time is running out as states gear up for the 2022 midterms. We'll look at the ways lawmakers have changed voting and elections this past year and what can be done. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Nina Kim. Among California's new laws, all registered voters will get mail-in ballots, regardless of whether they signed up to vote by mail. It's part of the state's effort to give more options and make it easier to vote. And it stands in stark contrast to states like Georgia, where mailing absentee ballots to all registered voters became illegal this past year, as well as offering water to voters waiting in line, and where the number of ballot drop boxes in certain counties has been cut by more than half. These state-level efforts to make voting harder and the importance of passing federal voting rights legislation are what President Biden and Vice President Harris plan to talk about in Atlanta today. And joining me now is Grace Panetta, senior political reporter with Business Insider. Grace, so glad to have you on Forum. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us what you expect Biden or Harris to say today, and how might their messages be different this time around? Yeah, we're getting a really interesting contrast of how these two leaders address the nation following the speeches they gave for the one-year anniversary um, of the January 6th insurrection last week. And similarly to those addresses, we're expecting both Biden and Harris to put out a very strong, forceful call for voting rights legislation. And we're expecting President Biden to specifically endorse certain changes to Senate rules, which he mm. has not expressly done before. So remind us about the two pieces of federal voting rights legislation first, the John Lewis Act and the Freedom to Vote Act. What do they do? 
Yeah, so the Freedom to Vote Act is a very, very large sweeping federal bill that mostly concerns voting rights and election administration and expanding voting rights and voting access and also has a couple of provisions related to campaign finance transparency. And it's a slimmed down version of a bill that Congress previously considered the For the People Act, H.R. 1. And then the John Lewis bill, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, would restore some key provisions of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that the U.S. Supreme Court has either struck down or significantly weakened. The biggest piece of that is restoring federal preclearance that would require certain jurisdictions to receive approval from the federal government before passing new voting changes. So where do these pieces of legislation stand right now? And how is this connected to what you were saying earlier about President Biden's willingness to look at the filibuster? Yeah, both of these bills have been filibustered by Senate Republicans very recently. Both last fall, they came up for a vote and Senate Republicans blocked debate on both of them. The only Republican senator who uh, voted to advance debate on either of these bills uh, was Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, who did vote to advance to debate on the John Lewis bill, but not the Freedom to Vote Act. So that's why Biden is now coming around to saying that we need changes to the way the Senate debates legislation and considers legislation to pass these bills. And so specifically, what is something that Biden is open to, the carve-out with regard to the voting rights legislation? Yes, we expect that uh, President Biden is going to advocate specifically for the Senate to change its rules to allow legislation related to voting rights to pass with a simple majority. Currently in the U.S. Senate, the vast majority of legislation requires 60 votes to even advance to debate. And the Senate most recently did a type of carve-out to um, raise the debt ceiling, Um, unilaterally. And now Biden's going to advocate that they do the same for voting rights. And what, in the meantime, has Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer done to to really kind of force people to take a stand on these issues related to the voting rights legislation and the filibuster issue and potential changes? Yeah, so here in the Senate, um, we are expecting a couple of votes in the next week. Leader Schumer has said that he will bring up both of those bills that were previously filibustered up for a vote again. It could be tomorrow, Thursday, Friday. And then if those do get filibustered, as we expect, he says he's going to hold a vote on making changes to the Senate rules, although we don't quite know what those will be yet. So can you help us understand the significance of this move by Schumer? Yeah, absolutely. Um, For basically since the Democrats retook the Senate majority. Uh, They've made voting rights and voting protections a priority, but all of their efforts have been blocked um, by Republicans. One crucial Democratic senator, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, tried to get 10 Republicans on board with one of those bills, the Freedom to Vote Act, and he did not succeed. So it's now basically an acknowledgement um, on the part of Senate Democratic leadership that they need rules changes to pass these bills, and that there's not really a path for bipartisanship here. So right now we have Biden and Harris preparing to give their remarks. And I'm wondering if you think that these moves by the Senate combined with what they're supposed to forcefully abdicate today will satisfy voting rights groups who have been pressing the administration, who have been pressing Democratic lawmakers for more action and a concrete strategy on getting legislation enacted and so on. Do you think their remarks will satisfy these groups? Um, I am not confident in that. And the reason being is that many voting rights groups have have expressed public disappointment with the White House and Biden for months now. 
um, out in the public. They think that a lot of groups think that this is coming far too little too late, and they think that Biden needed to call specifically for reforms to the filibuster much, much, much earlier in order to get this done. So a lot of them see the speech as just an empty gesture with no action to back it up and just think it's coming too late. We're talking with Grace Panetta, senior political reporter with Business Insider. And I want to bring into the conversation now Kendra Cotton, chief operating officer of the New Georgia Project, which is a nonpartisan voting rights organization in Georgia. Kendra Cotton, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. So the New Georgia Project is one prominent voter advocacy group that will not attend Biden and Harris's events. And can you tell me why? Why is your group not attending the speeches? Um, Because we have a lot of work to do. And that's exactly what we let the White House know. Um, We feel like the speech is quite performative um, in nature, um, a photo op of sorts. And we think that not only are they asking us to step away from the very real work that we have here on the ground. It's also taking away senators out of D.C. where they could be working to get to the yes. The filibuster is still currently in place, working to get to those 60 votes, bringing them down to Georgia for a photo op. And do you think your absence will have an impact in terms of a message? Like, are you trying to send a message and what impact are you hoping that message will have? I think we as a progressive coalition are certainly trying to send a message, and I think it's been effective. It's not just the New Georgia Project, um, but it's um, both our C3 and C4 tables, um, all, all of these groups, a collective of us who are just simply saying, hey, look, you know, in the face of all of the you know voter suppression that we're facing, um, we have, you know, Board of Election members being targeted. We have the state trying to take over boards of election. Again, as you mentioned at the top of the broadcast, we have, you know, we're trying to fight back um, the issues with the ballot boxes um, being retrenched and placed inside of buildings where people have less access. Um, we have all of these things that we're trying to work on and combat, and we just don't have the time to take out of our day in snarl traffic because, as you know, um, Atlanta <laughs> does not have a robust um, public transit system in, in snarl traffic to come down to the heart of the city um, to listen to a speech that is just everything that we already know. We have asked repeatedly if there was going to be something new introduced and nothing was offered. You know, we had your group CEO, CEO of the New Georgia Project, Ensei Ufad on in March. And as you're talking Mm -hmm. about the things that are happening in Georgia, that's exactly what we were talking about just before SB 202 passed. A lot of the provisions that make voting much harder, restrict access, pass. And of course, disproportionately, impacted communities of color and black communities. So do tell us a little bit first about some of the key provisions that have that have impacted voting, will impact voting in the upcoming elections as well. You mentioned earlier the drop boxes. You mentioned that they will be inside buildings as opposed to outside. I understand mm-hmm. that they've also been cut in counties from 94 in 2020 to like 23 or so uh, in 2022. Talk about where these counties are. Yes. Well, I mean, the counties are, I mean, even right here in the metro, like that, that's what's just so interesting. A lot of people, I think, think because um, Georgia, I think next to Texas um, is um, 159 counties in the state. Um, And so they think, oh, well, you know, if you don't have a drop box, you know, we have one drop box in a singular county you know, what dis- difference does that make? But if you're in a place like Cobb County, which is where I reside, 
which is in the metro area. And there's three job boxes, let's say, in the entire servicing this entire metro county. It um, is obstructive. Um, with regard to voting, because let's be clear, even though Georgia is and has been open throughout this pandemic, we are still very much living in a global pandemic. And there are those of us out here um, that reside with folks that are immunocompromised. Some of us are immunocompromised and we're trying to protect ourselves. And for the state to act like COVID just went away, right? And to say, you know what? We are taking away the no excuse absentee balloting. Mm -hmm. We are going to reduce the number of drop boxes, making it more difficult for you to then um, turn in the ballot if you do, in fact, qualify to receive one in the first place. I mean, that makes it more difficult for folks who are caring for elderly you know, family members, perhaps, or folks who are differently abled. And, you know, we just think it's a slap in the face to voters because, again, at the top of the hour, I was listening um, very enviously of how you described voting in California and the state of voting there. And I was just like, you know, we don't have to live like this, which is why we're so frustrated with the administration and the failure to really get to a, 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 you know, a satisfying policy outcome with regard to the John Lewis Um, Voting Rights Act and the Freedom to Vote Act, because we need a national standard for voting. It is too little too late to come and show up in our state in January of 2022 to full years after the inauguration. This should have been the first thing that the president jumped on right after January the 6th. Because he saw, we all witnessed the visceral and the vitriolic reaction to what Georgia accomplished in 2020. And, and these states, our state, you know, being one of the, the first, you know, responded in kind and said, you know what, we got something for y'all the next time because this won't happen again. And the administration has seemingly rested on its laurels. We feel like the president could have used his bully pulpit much earlier. Yes, and of course, we all remember that uh, Biden won Georgia by less than 13,000 votes. Yes. (laughs) Incredible. We're talking with Kendra Cotton, Chief Operating Officer of the New Georgia Project, a nonpartisan voting rights organization, and Grace Panetta, Senior Political Reporter with Business Insider. We're talking about voting rights and President Biden's speech addressing the topic in Georgia today. And we want to invite you, our listeners, to join us. What's your reaction to what you're hearing about the vulnerability of voting rights. Have you lived in a state with restrictive voting laws? What was that like when it came to voting? 866-733-6786 is the number. Email address forum at kqbd.org. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. There's an unfolding assault taking place in America today, an attempt to suppress and subvert the right to vote and fair and free elections, an assault on democracy, an assault on liberty, an assault on who we are, who we are as Americans. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim, and that was President Joe Biden in a July speech last year from Philadelphia addressing voter suppression. And that's the topic that we're talking about today with Grace Panetta, senior political reporter with Business Insider, Kendra Cotton, chief operating officer of the New Georgia Project. And I want to bring into the conversation now Wendy Weiser, vice president of democracy, the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU Law. Wendy Weiser, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. And of course, listeners, if you want to join the conversation, the number is 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Post your comments on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Email us, forum at kqed.org. And Wendy Weiser, just before the break, we were hearing about the efforts in Georgia to try to make voting harder, restrict the vote, and so on, restrict access to the vote, and so on. And of course, it's not just Georgia where efforts like this are going on, as your organization's research has shown. Can you paint the broader picture for us of what's happening in mostly Republican-led states across the country with regard to voting? Absolutely. And you are sadly correct that Georgia, while extreme, is not an outlier. Across the country, we've seen an unprecedented and aggressive push to roll back access to voting to make it harder for eligible citizens to vote. Last year alone, there were 34 laws in 19 states that were enacted that make it harder to vote. That is the most we've seen in over a century. And it is worse than it even sounds because it wasn't just last year. There, we're about a decade in to a strategy that's been slowly um, gaining steam to roll back voting rights. So states like Georgia have seen many years of legislation making it harder to vote in a death by a thousands cuts strategy. Um, of course, last year was much, much worse by far than what we've seen, and it is not stopping now. We are already seeing over 100 bills pre-filed or rolled over in states across the country, new bills being filed every day to roll back voting rights. And I, I want to say it's not just vote suppression, and I did want to add one other thing. There's this new trend and something that we have not ever seen before to actually try to attack the whole idea of impartial election administration, to put partisans in a position of being able to manipulate election administration or the vote count process, or to otherwise attack election officials who are doing the critical job of running the machinery of our democracy and our electoral system. And, and that is a, a scary new development on top of this wave going on in many, many of the same states that are also cutting back voting access. I'm really glad you are bringing that up because, yes, I mean, voter suppression, restricting access to voting and so on is not new in the history of America. And we have seen this, of course, um, throughout our history, especially against Black people and people of color. And what makes this different really is, as you say, um, essentially putting partisans uh, 
in the place of doing vote counts, things that were sort of usually done by people who who just had a role in making sure that a, a vote was counted accurately. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how the normalization of this is playing out. You have noted that the brazenness of people who are elected officials with regard to how to address and how to make vote counting a partisan issue has been really alarming. Yeah, and one of the things we've seen um, is not only an increased aggressiveness in efforts to suppress the vote and undermine elections, but now um, a, a change in the culture and in the values being expressed. It used to be that that was shameful and people would deny that they were suppressing votes. Now we're seeing more and more people saying the quiet part out loud, legislatures essentially admitting that they are trying to keep people, especially people of color, from being able to participate, that the reason why we want to stop, for example, same-day registration, which had long been in effect in Montana, is because people on our side don't use it. I mean, that that is not American. Um, you know, everybody deserves to participate and to choose our leaders. Um, on the election sabotage side, people are claiming that the elections are rigged because voters of color are turning out to vote, essentially. They're, they're, they're not even trying anymore to even put in a veneer of a a justification in many places. And, and that's alarming because it's actually changing what um, you know people are even purporting to be for. And, and I would say that one of the alarming developments, none of these laws actually passed, but in seven states, legislatures actually pushed laws that would have expressly allowed partisans to overturn election results or to revoke the certification of elections. You know, that was uh, in 2021 thought to be a viable thing to put forward and that wouldn't get you booed out of office. I mean, that that is a, an alarming escalation and attack on the whole idea of our democracy. Hmm. Let me go to caller Janet in Berkeley. Hi, Janet. Thanks for calling in. Hi. Yeah, I just wanted to say, I think um, I'm really disappointed with the, I've always been a Democrat, but I'm really disappointed with the party and how they're handling things. They're being held hostage by one or two people um, that would have never happened under LBJ. Um, And I think that they don't use any of the tactics. I think the Republicans are shameless, but when they have an agenda to push forward, they are, they are powerful in doing it. And the Democrats are so wishy-washy and so wanting to please a party that doesn't care about democracy or about equal rights that they're pushing us back to where my parents left the South because of Jim Crow. And they're pushing us back to that time when it's not about America is open and free. We've only had civil rights um, and voting rights for so long. It hasn't been that long. And so we're going backwards in this country. And it is where people are comfortable with saying they don't want minorities to have the right to vote. They don't want women to have rights to to abortion. They don't want us to progress and move forward. And the Democrats are at the powerful position. They're in the powerful position to make these changes solid. Whatever happened to the power of the presidential pin? Instead of our president saying, I want to work with the other side when the other side is saying, I want nothing to do with you, then he has to move the agenda forward for the people, not for his 
wanting to look like I'm a nice guy. It's time to do what's best for the country rather than what's best for him and his style of leadership, which is starting to look pretty shaky to me at this point. Mm. I'm really concerned. It's really concerned about how our party is, is not moving forward. Janet, thanks. I appreciate that. And let me get Kendra Cotton's reaction to what you're saying, because I imagine, Kendra, that that you have heard a lot of the same concerns from Janet, maybe even feel them yourself. And that combined with what Wendy Weiser was just saying about, you know, the level at which the focus is on certain positions of election administration, especially by Republicans. There's this real question about whether or not, you know, Democrats really have have you know their finger on the, the right areas of focus. <laughs> No, um, you know, and listening to those comments, and, and, and you're right, I do feel a lot of her sentiments personally, but what I can tell you, um, our organization, as I hope many of you know, we do a lot with going out and getting on the doors and talking to voters, and we also, everything that we do is informed by research, and I do want to elevate in this moment that we have a problem here in Georgia. We just got some research back in November of 2021 at the end of the year. Um, you know, we wanted to take a bead on what's going on in the black community here in Georgia, right? Because what we know, and, and as you mentioned, Biden won by fewer than 13,000 votes here in our state. And that was with us kind of running up the numbers in brown and black communities. So it is really important that Black, brown and black communities remain engaged at a high level and they overperform, if you will, the expected numbers on election day. What we got back blew our minds because of the administration's inability to seemingly deliver on policy expectations of brown and black people here in Georgia. Joe Biden and the administration are dragging down down ticket candidates. And what I mean by dragging them down, Abrams was at roughly about 87% approval. When you factor in now with Biden and the inability to move on legislation like voting rights, she's now down to 73%. And this is just among Black people. It's similar results where Warnock is concerned. And so what I'm saying is these things are tethered and we're not going to be able to untether them when we go to the doors and we try to convince folks to get back out and vote. In 2020, the landscape was different. The messaging was different. And that message was, hey, we need to bring back some statesmanship to this country. We need to, you know, make other, you know, international partners and other countries hold us in the in the same esteem that they once did and so it was kind of antithetical you know biden was that antithetical choice to to trump but we don't have that anymore now we've got to deliver some policy outcomes and where we're concerned is it's not getting to the doors and knocking on them it's what are we going to tell folks what are we going to tell them has happened because their lives haven't improved and that's problematic that is what's problematic. We're concerned about the substance or the lack thereof that the administration has been able to deliver for our communities. Well, Matthew writes, I live in Georgia and listen to KPCC online since I used to live in San Francisco. This is a great discussion. I can echo the comments made. I live in Cobb County. Our county was split into four districts by the Republican legislature to dilute our vote and reduce 
the drop boxes. The nearest drop box to me will be 30 minutes away, and they moved my voting place to a small building 20 minutes away. What is going on here is very disturbing. I wish Biden was doing more. And Rick tweets, what is Biden's endgame in ratcheting up expectations that voting rights will pass when the indications are that it will not? Same for Schumer, play to the base. I'm curious to get your reaction to that, um, Grace Panetta, just in terms of Biden's endgame and ratcheting of expectations uh, that voting rights will pass when it's likely it will not. Grace Panetta, are you there? And while we try to reconnect with Grace, um, we will go next to caller Chris in Santa Clara. Chris, thanks for waiting. Go right ahead. Yeah, hey, thanks very much. And a couple of quick points. Um, you know, there's been lots of polling out there that the media are covering, apparently showing that Biden's overall approval rating keeps dropping. What media are not talking about, however, is that when you look at the crosstabs, and it doesn't matter whether it's Kenny Apiak or Marist NPR or ABC, whatever, you can look at all of them. Every one of them has people of color continually supporting Biden, including when you even get down to questions regarding the economy. The demographic that is strongly opposed to Biden are white men and especially undereducated white men. And, you know, I'm encouraging your guests to start to get a lot more racially focused, a lot more direct about the fact that white men in this country are the problem. And I say this as somebody, I spent 16 years as a member of the Democratic National Committee. I'm European descended. I probably self-present as white. I mean, Polish and Greek is a background. And until we get extremely clear that Trump won the white election, there is no question that among white people, every demographic that white people voted for Trump. President Biden is president because he got a minority of white voters in coalition with a multi-ethnic coalition. And as far as Democrats go, we've got to get a lot more clear that the problem is that we have lost white men. But let's call them out. It's not people of color who are voting to restrict voting rights in Georgia. It's white men. It's the Confederacy. Let let me get Wendy Weiser's reaction to what you're saying. Wendy, what do you think of what Chris's point is here? Well, I, I also wanted to refer back to what the earlier questioner said, but you know, I think there's, you know, absolutely um, a, a lot of a racial dimension to what's going on, to what's driving the effort to suppress votes. That's what driving the election sabotage agenda. That was driving the extreme gerrymandering that's going on across the country at the expense of communities of color. That is a critical, critical part of what's going on and and what's so pernicious and um, and immoral about it. Um, I I did want to say that, you know, people are rightfully angry that this voting legislation has not yet passed and that as we are descending into what is perhaps the greatest crisis um, that our democracy has faced or certainly since the Civil War and um, and Jim Crow, that, that this is being allowed to fester and to worsen. But I, I do want to sound a hopeful note right now because we are really, you know, at a, a real pivot point and potentially at the cusp of passing 
transformative legislation. And people are skeptical, but you know, we're looking at what the senators are actually doing. And the Senate Democrats have been talking about this and prioritizing this and negotiating this with the um, senators that have been more skeptical about um, rules reform um, single-mindedly, and they are confident that there might be a path forward. And the president getting up and talking now, you know, that that is actually a, a, a dramatic step forward. I, I understand the the perspective that the you know we we would have liked to see this much sooner, but now you know it is not too late to get this legislation over the finish line. Majority Leader Schumer said that he is calling, has a vote scheduled this week, um, and that anger should be turned into advocacy at the White House, at your senators. Um, don't take anyone for granted, because I, I think that there's a real moment where this could happen now, and it's the top priority. And you know we could see real transformative legislation that actually puts us on firmer ground than we were before past the Senate, because it must. Kendra, what can a Californian or someone deeply concerned about the status of voting rights and understands the impact on all of us if it's happening in in any state in terms of its in terms of attacks on it what what can they do I think folks in California, um, obviously, besides supporting grassroots organizations um, like ours financially, because we are in the trenches, let me say this, I think it goes a long way to um, to volunteer from afar. What we saw during 2020 is that we had a lot of folks um, during the election actually, you know, out, outside of Georgia, outside of our 159 counties, sign up to, you know, write postcards to voters. And people think, oh, that's kind of lame. But y'all, it really, really does work because it's a personal touch, right? Um, we have a lot of issue campaigns. It's not just about getting someone to vote for a particular candidate. What we're trying to do is educate folks and connect the dots on why voting is so important, right? And so the more people that are talking about it and the more people who are clamoring to participate, it's going to um, put more pressure on our elected officials to stop playing these games with the process because a grassroots movement, a true grassroots movement can't be ignored. It's what it's essentially what happened in 1965. Like it was a great, that's what pushed our elected officials to action. It wasn't like they just woke up and had an epiphany and said, you know what? I want to expand voting rights to everyone who's a citizen in the U S no people were demanding it through their actions. And so I would encourage folks in, you know, in California to really get involved and support you know, folks in Georgia and in Alabama and in Mississippi, where they don't even have early voting at all. You know, this is a problem throughout the South. And if we really want to live our values and bring about positive social change, it in, that's national, it's going to take work in the Southern region, because as we go, as does the country goes. We'll have more with Kendra Cotton of the New Georgia Project, Wendy Weiser of the Brennan Center for Justice, and Grace Panetta with Business Insider. After the break, stay with us. I'm Mina Kim.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about voting rights this hour with Wendy Weiser, Vice President of Democracy at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU Law, Kendra Cotton, Chief Operating Officer at the New Georgia Project, Grace Panetta, Senior Political Reporter with Business Insider, and your listeners are sharing your thoughts about what you're hearing regarding the, the vulnerability of voting rights, what voter suppression tactics concern you the most, and what you'd like to see President Biden and Vice President Harris do when it comes to voting rights. You can call us at 866-733-6786. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. You can post your comments on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. And let me go to caller Irene in Sacramento. Hi, Irene. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. I can tell you I am sick to my stomach. During the previous presidency, I felt that we were going to have another Hitler And what I'm seeing right now with the Republicans is that there is a similarity in between what they are doing now and what happened in the past in this country, removing voting rights, health care, education, my goodness, even water at voting sites. And from where I'm standing, I think that the Republicans just want to take everything away from black and brown and and white who are disadvantaged and just go back to slavery so that they have to own these people and just say, yeah, you can have or no, you can't. This is sickening and it has to stop. And to the previous caller, yes, we all need to get together and write those postcards. I did my good share and I'm glad, you know, Georgia went for Biden. And uh, the last thing I want to say is that all those Republicans that are doing these things to the disadvantaged population should go 180 degrees and experience personally what they are doing to all those people. Live in rat-infested housing. Don't have health care. Don't have bank accounts in the millions. You know, remove their voting rights and water at the polling, and then we'll see how they fare. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks, Irene, for the call. Let me read a couple of comments. Margot writes, the very fact that the United States legislators are trying to suppress the democratic process should be of serious concern to every American. We are taking our democracy for granted and may well lose it because of complacency. Some people will only see this in retrospect when it's too late. Catherine writes, the state of voting rights is that it's never been easier to vote than it is now, and the turnout in 2020 broke records. Both, quote, sides continue to exaggerate their positions in terms of voter suppression and voter fraud. Most of the changes to voting laws being proposed by the states are simply rolling back regulations to pre-pandemic conditions. That's not to say things can't be improved, but sweeping legislation that essentially federalizes elections is not the answer. Wendy Weiser, what do you think of what Catherine is saying here? Yeah, well, unfortunately, I, I, I firmly 
disagree with her articulation of the facts. We, we actually study the legislation. We've been studying all of the voting legislation, good and bad, that have been going on in the states for well over a decade. We issue regular reports. And we have found that of the um, 19 states that roll back voting rights this year, not one of those um, efforts that we reported on, not one of those laws are rolling it back from any expansion in 2020. They are new restrictions in law um, that make it um, harder over what it was even before the pandemic. So it is not just targeting the 2020. And I know that there's been a lot of confusion and misinformation about that. These are new restrictions. And again, they are restrictions being piled on top of other restrictions. Some of them are, and there's a range of them there. We, we see things like rolling back um, access to early voting, rolling back access to mail voting, um, imposing strict ID requirements, making it um, easier to um, purge eligible voters from the voter rolls to um, more um, novel things like criminalizing a whole range of um, things that people do to assist voters from the food and water in line, providing food and water in line to helping people um, uh, as they have a right to do, um, cast their ballots if they um, have um, physical, um, need physical assistance or language assistance. Well, Robert writes, please address the most pernicious and least discussed aspect of Republican efforts to overturn democracy, the changes allowing partisan legislators to overturn election results, and how proposed legislation addresses or doesn't address this issue. Well, Grace Panetta, are you with us? Yes, I can hear me. Yes, I can now. And let's go back to you on this. We did touch on this a little bit, but I know that you did quite a bit of reporting on how partisan legislators and just generally who will count the votes in 2024 will be determined by midterms in 2022. Can you just give us a quick overview of that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes what a lot of people don't realize um, is that, you know, the states really do have a lot of discretion, particularly in presidential elections, to allocate their electoral votes the way they want to. There's not even a constitutional requirement that they hold elections. Um, and there have been some bills proposed in legislative sessions last year that would have given state legislatures more authority to appoint presidential electors or determine elections. We didn't really see many of those bills actually get passed, but they were introduced. But I think a lot of the bills we did get passed related to this question of who counts our votes, who runs our elections, are new pieces of legislation in states like Texas, Florida, Georgia, Iowa, that add on new criminal penalties or fines for election officials for simply doing their jobs, that prohibit election officials, for example, um, who are often dealing with really, really low budgets and are just perpetually underfunded from accepting private grants to help them run elections, adding these new arbitrary restrictions, especially when it comes to drop boxes like in Georgia, that these really, really amount to lowering morale, um, just micromanaging election administration. Can you talk a little bit about the efforts or, or who is really up in terms of secretaries of state and governors? Yeah, so another trend we're seeing later this year um, in 2022 are very, very crucial gubernatorial elections and elections for the Secretary of State, who in most states serves as the chief election official. Governors are really, really crucial because they certify election results and, of course, uh, sign or veto election-related bills, and secretaries oversee um, the conduct of our elections. And in many, many key swing states, including Georgia, 
Michigan, um, Arizona, you have people running for these positions, some of whom have been endorsed by the former president, who have perpetuated lies that the 2020 election was beset by voter fraud or was stolen entirely. And that is a, can be very, very concerning um, to see that playing out across the country and to maybe have a chief election official who would try to reject or overturn um, an election result. Well, there are a couple of comments here that I'd like to get your reaction, Kendra. Peter tweets, I'm concerned that Democrats are blaming each other rather than addressing the real problem. Also, that we expect too much from the presidency. This is not a dictatorship and the POTUS can't just decree voting rights. Similarly, Jan writes, I'm troubled by the fact that the Democrats can't seem to unite behind President Biden. By the way, he's only been in office one year, not two years, as your guest stated. If you don't back Biden, who or what is the alternative? Trump? Please, let's stop being so anti-us. We need to pull together and compromise and do all those things it's going to take to defeat the weird new Republican Party we're facing. Want to see progress completely taken away? Stay on the progressive path. So, like, I saw some of those tweets as I was listening to the other comments and actually replied to one. But um, my response to this and our response collectively here in Georgia is that um, we can chew gum and walk, right? If we can support the administration, but yet demand some some semblance of accountability. It is not an us against them narrative. And I want to push back um, pretty forcefully um, at that characterization. That is not what's happening. No one is out here bashing President Biden or bashing Vice President Harris. What we're demanding is that they deliver on the policies that they themselves articulated um, they would put forth, you know, for a vote. And what is concerning to us, and and I, I can't remember who made this comment, is that the lack of organization, right? Like on, when it comes to the democratic side of the aisle, for whatever reason, Um, to use a football analogy since Georgia played in the national championship game last night, um, we act like we don't have the ball. And I don't, uh, and and for the life of us, we can't understand why that is. It's not that we're fumbling the ball. Like we literally act like we are not in the majority. Yes, it's not a super majority, but it's a majority nonetheless. And so, you know, it's concerning to us that we are just now entertaining the idea of having a filibuster carve out for voting rights. Why wasn't this sense of urgency present a year ago? These are the types of questions that we're asking. And it's because we truly believe that there is a sense out there that elected officials at the national level think, oh, you know, despite what's happening on the ground, you guys can just go out there and get more votes and, you know, be energetic and get our folks to the polls and then we'll try again the next time. And what we're saying is with bad maps, with bad laws, there's not going to be a next time. We're talking about a generational shift, a generational shift. And, you know, I did want to just kind of also reply very quickly to the caller who said that this is just a rollback or the respondent that said it's just a rollback to pre-pandemic. That can't be further from the truth. Because pre-pandemic, guess what? I couldn't be arrested and taken to jail for handing out water to folks who've been standing in line in the heat. Because this is the South now. It could be 90 degrees on election day down here. And you're standing, and particularly during the primary season. And if we go to offer a bottle of water to someone, they have cops out at polling locations, regularly harassing grassroots organizers like myself my staff, they are waiting for us to make a misstep 
so that they can arrest us to the point where we have activists like, you know, folks in the Catholic community, we have nuns who have organized themselves who are going to be handing out water um, at polling locations so that they can take a rest because we're trying to fight this stuff from a grassroots perspective. We're taking stock of the status of voting rights today as President Biden delivers a speech addressing this topic in Georgia today. And we're talking with Kendra Cotton of the New Georgia Project, Wendy Weiser of the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU, and Grace Panetta, senior political reporter with Business Insider. And you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to caller Brandon in Foster City. Hi, Brandon. Oh, my goodness. Thank you guys so much for letting me uh, speak. Wendy. Grace, my, I have an actionable, discreet proposal of a solution. I feel like I, I think it's amazing that we have the entire country and we count the votes in one 24-hour period when we do something so much more rational in car registration, where it's an ongoing rolling count, where everybody registers all the cars, like, a, you know, they're divided over 12 months. And this is what I would hope you guys would suggest and run with, because I think it'd be an antidote to maybe most of what the Republicans passed. I'm equally as upset as you guys, but we need to act on something. And I think what we should do is push for a national three-day holiday. So for three days, you think the working people, the hardest hurdle they have is getting us these stories I hear of people having to get to drop boxes at late at night. That's ridiculous. We should have a three-day holiday. If we could get Juneteenth passed and we could get... Martin Luther King Day passed, and those are holidays. I mean, three-day holiday every four years averages out to less than one a year. Push for that. Get that through. People would have plenty of time to vote. They have this big cluster bunch on, on, on one chaotic day and count. That's ridiculous. Uh, Brandon. Please strive to get that change. That's my suggestion. Thanks. Wendy Weiser, was there some provision that addressed Election Day as a holiday in the Freedom to Vote Act? Yes, and and thank you to the caller for creative thinking on this. The Freedom to Vote Act actually um, does address this problem quite effectively with some best practices. There is Election Day would be a holiday under the Freedom Vote Act, and that was actually um, a, a provision that Senator Manchin was especially passionate about. It would have mandatory early voting so that every American would be able to rely on having 14 days of early voting available, including evenings and weekends, and the election day, the last day, would be a holiday. And on the vote counting, it does actually require states to allow um, uh, jurisdictions to start counting votes as soon as they come in. Uh, We knew in 2020 there was a problem that some states um, and and some very um, critical states um, had a very short window in which they were permitted to count votes, but there were others that had a much more sensible process and spread that out. And that is that processing is would also be part of that. And just sort of more broadly, I just didn't want to step back because we we haven't we started by talking about this legislation that is up for a vote. But I I did want to point out that these two bills, the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, in, in my view, in my organization's view, would really stop all of this vote suppression, gerrymandering, election sabotage in its tracks. It has the, it has very well developed 
proven solutions to each of these problems. It would reverse the huge um, backslide that we've seen in this last year and going forward would really strengthen voting rights um, for all Americans. So it, it is a, a they're really um, terrific solutions would put us back on track and, and, and answers those problems as well. Well, um, and, and, yeah. and does answer the election sabotage. I did want to say that the national standards would also prevent people from subverting election outcomes. It is not just um, the electors and the presidential vote where that's a real risk. Um, but even in the um, presidential vote, um, there's a, a, the risk happens at other parts of the process as well, not just at the end when the um, uh, electors are certified. We need to make sure that Americans' votes and the election process are secured at all steps of the process. And that's what these bills do. Well, let me get John's comment into you, Wendy. John writes, in the unlikely event that the Democrats could push through significant federal voting rights legislation, it's sure to be challenged in courts. Even if the two bills were passed this week, the court challenges likely would forestall the implementation of these rules until after the next election. Can your guests comment on this? What do you think about that, Wendy? So uh, I, I think your um, caller is absolutely right that there's going to be challenges. We anticipate challenges across the country. I do not think that those challenges were for, forestall the legislation. I think that um, if the legislation is blo- will only be blocked if there's merit to that those challenges. And um, I, I believe that both of these bills are on very, very firm constitutional footing. Um, the Freedom to Vote Act um, is pursuant to a power that the Constitution gives specifically to Congress to um, under the elections clause that um, the that Justice Scalia had said could give Congress the, the ability, the right to write a whole code for federal elections to completely supplant state codes. That's not what Congress has done here, but the power is that um, strong. And, and actually, Justice Roberts, in, in its his decision a couple of years ago that um, uh, barred federal courts from policing partisan gerrymandering, not only said that this is squarely in Congress's court under the Elections Clause, but actually pointed to the predecessor of the Freedom to Vote Act, H.R. 1, as an example of a bill that Congress had pending that would be just that kind of proper exercise of Congress's power. So it's on very firm legal ground. The John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act was very, very specifically crafted to be responsive to all of the Supreme Court's concerns in its recent decisions. It is very um, word for word responsive to all of um, what the Supreme Court said that Congress needs to do. So so I am confident that these bills in significant part are going to survive. And if they're in effect, that they will, you know, significant portions of them will go into effect immediately. And, and, And frankly, it's time sensitive, um, especially <laughs> relating to redistricting. Time is running out. We're going to see um, ballots could be going out um, as soon as um, the end of the week or beginning of next week in Texas. Um, the you know the, there are court challenges to the gerrymanders that we've already seen and to their discriminatory maps. Um, some of those are already leading to delays in um, the primaries, but um, we, we need to have remedies in place um, right away before those gerrymanders take hold and skew our elections in really extreme ways this year. Well, Sam writes, it seems like they've been talking about Build Back Better. Voting rights should have always been front and center once this new administration took over. Well, I I, I know that you are ending on an optimistic note there, Wendy, and I am um, 
definitely heartened by the interest and enthusiasm in today's topic today from our listeners and so grateful to you, Wendy Weiser, Vice President of Democracy at Brennan Center for Justice at NYU, Grace Panetta, Senior Political Reporter with Business Insider, and grateful to you, Kendra Cotton, Chief Operating Officer at the New Georgia Project, for being with us today. Grace One produced today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.